0: 背を到中国中国人员 Hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of our podcast Heroic Purgatory, a nature cinema podcast. Uh, My name is John and with me as always is Jason. Uh, Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks John. How are you? Uh, Fine, same as usual. Uh, Pretty good considering. So the episode that we'll discuss today is the Chinese 2000 film directed by Wen Jiang, uh, Devils on the Doorstep. But uh, before we get into that, uh, we'll... uh, We'll do our usual, where we talk about well, how our weeks have been, what everyone be watching or uh, reading or doing, etc. So why don't you start, Jason?
1: So I've started uh, doing more overtime at work now that everything's opened back up again.
0: So when you say open back up, is it is it uh, full capacity now?
1: It's not full capacity. It's reduced. Um, in terms of where I work, we have limited numbers of people coming in. I work in a museum. So we're only open certain days of the week, and we only allow 200 people per hour. And so weekdays are usually the quietest. Uh, Weekends are the busiest, because all the children are off school. And um, during this pandemic, numbers have dropped significantly during the weekdays. That makes perfect sense. Mm. Hmm. but uh, I've started doing more over time because film crews have been using the museum as a location. And um, once the public leave, uh, like, uh, the prop team come in and uh, redecorate various parts of the building. So uh, being able to um, observe as uh, yeah, some movie magic goes on.
0: So, I have a couple of questions about that uh, first first of all, the first one is just uh when you is are museums running at full staff now or is it their staff still reduced? Staff are reduced um, people
1: um, have been placed on furlough if they have medical conditions that prevent them from traveling safely to work, and um, staff that can work at home uh, are allowed to work at home okay so i uh, since I'm in a public facing role, I have to go into the museum.
0: And and when you say, uh, the second question is, when you say film crews, is this something that's new to the pandemic or has this always been going on at the museums that you work at?
1: It's always been going on at the museums. Due to the nature of the place, um, we've got sort of a neoclassical architecture and like a grand main hall and different types of um exhibition spaces uh, that provides uh, fertile ground for uh, location designers uh, lo- location managers to find you know, where to film certain scenes so we frequently get used as a filming location
0: have you met anybody fam- famous yet
1: uh, in terms of famous mostly um, British television personalities
0: sure yeah I mean they can you know, anybody anybody that I would p- possibly know uh, have you ever watched Doctor Who? Uh, I no, I know
1: the show, but I've never watched it. Okay, we've had like um, st- some of the old Doctor Who's in uh, Matt Smith oh, and okay. Jenna Coleman, who okay. is was the um, assistant. Uh, in terms of famous people, n- uh, no major film stars. Although the city where I live is uh, has been used for film locations, uh, Brad Pitt and. Um, Marky Mark Wahlberg have uh traveled yeah so um maybe one day I'll be able to meet them okay yeah well one one can always hope Mm. and um in terms of what I've been watching and reading um I watched the Martin Scorsese film The Departed um the 2001 film Series 7, The Contenders, which is a satirical take on reality TV. Uh, what else have I watched? I watched a couple of Japanese B-movies, um, Goke, Body Snatcher from Hell, and Matango, Attack of the Mushroom People. I watched uh, an Italian neorealist film called Umberto D. And oh, um, is, th-
0: is that from um, the director that did Bicycle Thieves? Uh, Sekka uh vittorio de sica or something like that
1: yeah i think so i mean this is the first time i'd seen umberto d and it was on a recommendation from a friend i'm
0: I'm, i've seen a lot of that uh yeah vittorio de sica i've seen a lot of that director's film i can't remember if vittorio d is one of them but uh uh but anyway please go on
1: yep and i watched uh the italian horror movie the house of exorcism which is a re-edit of lisa and the devil which i watched a couple of weeks ago and I watched three Kiyoshi Kurosawa films, Door Free, a horror movie, um, The Revenge, A Visit from Fate. Those two are like direct to um, video or V-Cinema releases. And I watched um, To the Ends of the Earth, uh, which I'm going to review for V-Cinema.
0: Okay, so that that's also a Kiyoshi Kurosawa film.
1: Yes. Oh, okay. And um, I'm trying to complete the game Front Mission Free, um, which I mentioned a, a few podcast episodes ago. So I think I've, it's a it's got branching storylines with so 60 missions per story, and I'm about 20 missions from completing one of the storylines.
0: Is that a first-person shooter?
1: It's an isometric tactical role-playing game. Oh, okay. So um, robots taking turns shooting at each other. I see. I see.
0: Okay. That, uh, I mean, that sounds like a busy couple of weeks for you.
1: Yeah. Uh, on top of like trying to keep up on like, um, cinema releases in Japan and, um, Absolutely. writing yeah. reviews. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, trying to spend more time broadening, like the films that I watch to go beyond horror. And, um, so like exploring more Italian cinema, neorealist cinema is something I need to, um, get into.
0: Okay. Yeah, you know, I I was uh, there was a point in my life where I was a huge fan. So I watched uh, around college time, I, I want to say, although I don't remember exactly, where I watched a a bunch of neorealist uh, Italian films, and it's uh, it's probably my favorite period of Italian cinema. Uh, I don't like uh, I don't like the latter part, and I don't like the earlier part um, that much, uh, with a few exceptions. Whereas that that small period between the the forties. Uh, like mid 40s to late 50s, I kind of, uh, I've always enjoyed that part of Italian cinema.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, it's a blind spot for me. So,
0: yeah, no, there, there's some great, there's some excellent, uh, uh, there's three or four excellent directors that, you know, you can't go wrong by just, just looking, they looking up their filmography one by one.
1: Okay. Yeah. I'll, uh, probably mention them in future episodes of the podcast. And if you have any recommendations, uh, feel free to give them.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you've seen Bicycle Thieves, right? Uh, not yet. Oh, okay. So it's by the same director, so uh, I would recommend watching it. It's um, um, uh, Vittorio De Sica, Bicycle Thieves and Shoeshine are his um, sort of two best well-known. Uh, Roberto Rossellini is another filmmaker uh, that kind of fits exactly the same category. And, um... Federico Fellini was also at the same time period, but I don't, I wouldn't qualify. His films were a lot more abstract and and uh, uh, avant-garde. Uh, that's the best word I can describe him. And they, they don't exactly fit that neorealist, realist uh, aesthetic. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, Roberto Rossellini, Pier Paolo Pasolini, maybe. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure if he also fits into that. But he was also around the same time. Okay. Um. Anyway so uh my 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 couple of weeks in terms of watching uh haven't been as as um as fulfilling as yours or as i'd like to because uh like i mentioned off the mic i was uh, i was busy at work uh this couple of these couple of weeks because we have a deadline coming up but i did manage to watch a few i watched the vincent price classic horror uh house on the haunted hill oh yeah i watched that yeah yeah, this was more of a, a, a guilty pleasure watch. I was just bored one night and this looked like like it would be, it would have just the right amount of camp that I would appreciate and it, it, it paid off. I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> okay. So yeah, um, and I like the twist at the end. Uh, no spoilers, but there is a twist, which in itself is a spoiler, I guess. Uh, uh, I watched a film that I'm reviewing also for the cinema called The Paper Tigers, and this is a, an American film, but it is an almost exclusively Asian cast. And it's, um, it's a clear, a very obvious homage to like Hong Kong classic martial art films, not quite, uh, Huja films, but you know, the, mar- the kind of martial arts that sort of exaggerate, uh, the, the, the skills a little bit. I'm not sure if you, um, if you know, like, uh, do you remember like the, that scene in Kill Bill where they talk about that killer move that if you do it, it makes your heart stop or something like that. Yeah. So like that's, that's in this film as well. So that kind of, uh, um, that kind of style, I guess. Okay. Very well made. And it's a, it's a low budget film, but the, the actors clearly know how to fight and that, that makes all the difference. I also, I kind of watched the TV show. Well, I, I started watching the TV show Archer. Uh, it was better than I expected. Just looking, I, I, I've never been too much of a too fan of like weird animation, but it's, it's a pretty funny show. I don't know if you've seen it. I've heard of it. It's like a spy show. Yeah, it's a spy comedy. It's an animated spy comedy. Very funny. If you have if you have access to it, I'd recommend watching it. Okay. And so one thing that's not related to watching anything, uh, but it's also part of the reason why I haven't been able to 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 view as many things as I want to is because, you know, I've been, uh, kind of complaining, uh, on the show about, you know, the quarantine and every day being kind of the same and, um, and being stuck at home all day. So what I decided to do is, uh, watch, um, uh, take some free online photography classes and then go out and practice taking pictures. Okay. Uh, so I've been, I've been trying to do that as a hobby. Like I don't have any ambitions for it or anything like that, but, um, uh, but it, it was it's fun so I, I try to go out every day and you know with my camera and try to you know try to practice my composition skills and and snapping you know whatever I think looks would look good on camera yeah maybe you could put some on uh, Twitter feed it, once I get to the level of skill that I that I that I, that I that I end up looking halfway decent, then yeah maybe I will uh, try to put some on I, I
1: tend to take a lot of photos but they just sit languishing on the hard drive
0: yeah yeah so so that's you know i everybody can like learn to take better photos by just following a few rules and trying to uh trying to kind of practice of course practice with like everything we practice makes better but i don't know it seemed like a good way to break the monotony uh, in these uh times of lockdown some socially distance activity exactly yeah. you don't have to interact with anybody you can just go on a trail somewhere and you know snap away and that's that's what I've been doing I've been enjoying it I've only been doing it for about a week maybe a little over a week but uh, it's been fun that's great okay um, so that was our segment uh, about you know what we've seen and what we've been doing, uh, we we also have a, a new segment, and I've only written down one piece of news. And feel free to add more uh, if you want, Jason. But um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the journal or the magazine *Census of Cinema*.
1: Um, vaguely familiar with it. Um, I read it a couple of times when I was in university, and uh, unfortunately haven't been back since. But I remember it had a great collection of writing on it.
0: It does. And for, for the listeners who are may not be aware, senses of cinema is an online, uh, Australian magazine, although there are, it has writers from all over the world because it's, of course it's online. And, uh, it's it's hard to exact to sum up what exactly its its a subject is, but it's a cinema magazine that is its aim is to sort of bridge academic cinema writing with more uh, like mainstream popular writing. So it's kind of it kind of sits in between. But anybody can submit articles to it. And it it it, it, it uh, this week it released a call for contributors call. Uh, and it's also free. I should say that you can support it if you want uh, voluntarily, but you can read it for free online. There's no, there, there's no. It's not behind a paywall or anything like that. But if you're uh, a writer like, uh, like Jason is, like I am, uh, and you're, uh, you might have an idea for an article about anything. Uh, feel maybe you can check out their calls for contributors, and uh, maybe you have something that you're. Um, Uh, you've been kind of working on and you wanted to see in print in a in a relatively respected publication and this would be a great opportunity for you absolutely it'd be one i'm i should uh
1: check out and uh maybe i should also uh check out all the articles that are being published on there
0: yeah and they like i said they're they're not they they publish uh things of all topics related to cinema they have they even cover festivals so i feel like this would be great for you jason that do actually uh cover festivals very frequently uh <laughs> you, you actually follow them so you might you might look into that uh, however uh they i have noticed that they do uh, they do sort of um theme their, their issues. So one issue is predominantly about something. And there's all, of course, there's always articles that are not about that thing, but it sort of, they try to, uh, to kind of have to kind of bundle each of their articles around a certain, like sometimes around a director or around a genre or around a country and, and stuff like that. So like, uh, like one issue, they might cover like this topic predominantly, although they'll have articles about other stuff as well. So that's something to keep in mind if you're submitting to them. Well, it's a great opportunity and um,
1: yeah, I should check it out just to try and improve my own writing. I suppose I could get some inspiration. Uh, maybe I might be scared off from doing uh, festival articles if the quality is um, better, than a lot better than what I put it.
0: I think I, I think it's a great practice, not because but not because it's it's a, a respectable journal. Of course, the, the one that we write for as well as also there's also an editor behind that. So so not not to put down the Cinema, but it's also it's also uh, great when there is you know a, an extra layer of scrutiny uh, that helps you develop as a writer. Mm. Instead, because you know you can everybody can have a blog, but you're your own editor for for any blog. Um, uh, and again, not to, like I'm not saying your blog is not well edited. It's fantastically. Ed- it's fa- the, the the content is great, but there's it's a different game, so to speak, when there is someone else looking at your writing and giving you explicit feedback, or even even when they outright reject you. That that can also be a learning moment.
1: Uh sounds like something I'd like to take advantage of, man.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I would recommend everyone take advantage of that. Of course, I'm being a little bit hypocritical because I myself have been uh, skeptical submitting for the same reasons that you mentioned. (laughs) Mm. It can be a little bit um, intimidating. Yeah,
1: but that actually getting that feedback to improve is a massive part of being a writer. And it's something I'm looking for. Absolutely.
0: All right, so is there... Did you run into any other news that you think is worth mentioning for our listeners?
1: Uh, No, other than to um, just remind people that Japanese Film Festival plus the online um, film streaming service uh, are beginning to show films in various regions of the world. Um, They're all free to view. You just have to go onto the website and see if your country is one of the ones that the films will be streamed in.
0: Yeah, and we mentioned this last week, and I put a link to that on the website where we post our episode. I might do that again, just as a reminder, if uh, if I remember to do that.
1: Yeah, I think America is going ahead very soon. So if you're in America and you're listening to this, uh, check out uh, Japanese Film Festival Plus, and you can see all sorts of great films.
0: All right. Uh, so that was it for our new segment now we're jumping to our main discussion of the film of the of this episode and that is uh, once again Wen jung's uh and i think i'm pronouncing that correctly although forgive me if i'm not uh film devils on the doorstep so as usual jason would you like to summarize the film for us okay so
1: the film takes place in 1945 in rakama terrace a remote coastal village in Japanese-occupied Manchuria, China. A local peasant named Ma Dasan is shocked one night when an armed man crashes into his home with two men in burlap sacks. These two men are prisoners. One of them is Kosoburo Hanaya, a belligerent Japanese sergeant. The other is Dong Hanchen, a Chinese interpreter working for the Japanese army the mysterious man instructs Ma Da san to keep the two prisoners captive and interrogate them until he returns a few days later to collect them. If anything happens to the two men, Madasan san will be killed. Unfortunately for Mada-san, there is a regiment of Japanese soldiers living nearby. Caught in the tough predicaments, Ma seeks the help of his fellow villagers while he keeps the prisoners in his cellar.
0: Right, thank you, Jason. That was a great plot summary. So before we begin our discussion, I should put out the disclaimer that neither of us is an expert on Chinese cinema, and in fact, please uh, correct me if I'm if I'm uh, mischaracterizing your knowledge of of cinema. But at least for me, Chinese uh, mainland cinema from mainland China is is one that I'm the least familiar of uh, compared to other. Uh, East Asian countries. I don't know if that's the case for you as well. I'm in uh, in the same boat, so to speak. Yeah. So so our discussion, so that will certainly color our discussion and our audience has to forgive us if we make uh, some mistakes that someone better equipped uh, to do this wouldn't make. Uh, but, uh, you know, we we can just do the same countries over and over again. We have to try to spread out. So that's why we thought it was a good idea to choose uh, a... Uh, a Chinese film as the final film of the first season uh, of our uh, gateway films. However, with that being said, Wen Zhang is a director and actor that I'm perhaps the most familiar in in Chinese uh, cinema, I've seen most of his films. I think I think I just haven't seen his uh latest one and of course i haven't seen all of them because he was an actor before he was a director and i haven't seen all of the one that he's acted but i've seen a few and i've seen most of the films that he's directed however uh i understand that for you jason this was a first time watch absolutely
1: this is the first time i've watched it although i had heard of it um after it won an award and um yeah i was uh anticipating um Uh, black comedy and um i wasn't sure um when the comedy would start because it's really oppressive and (laughs) especially if you know the history of china
0: yeah so what what did you think of it you know what uh maybe you can expand on what exactly you were expecting and then what did you end up uh, receiving when you finally watched it so i was expecting a black comedy and
1: for the first hour that was kind of what i got um with sort of misinterpretations um some slapstick humor and some Um, character based comedy as you get these, um, uh, forgive me for using the term, country bumpkins um, caught between um, like the Japanese military and um, the Chinese military and trying to keep their heads above water, trying to survive this incredible situation. And the film just grew more and more oppressive uh, and became very grim. And I was kind of um, surprised. Uh,
0: i i appreciate what the film tried to do Uh, did it sort of uh, based on and we'll talk about awards later but his this has won some big awards did you did you find that it met your expectations did you feel a little bit disappointed
1: i didn't find the comedy as funny as i thought it would be Um, but i appreciated uh how it depicted the japanese and Chinese civilians, um, interacting with each other. And, uh, I enjoyed the sort of taking a complex, oh, I don't want to say enjoyed. I appreciated how it took a, um, complex, uh, situation, which, uh, is the cause of so much international, uh, troubles between China and Japan and, um, manages to make quite, uh, complex, um, drama out right, of it. Um, I felt like it, even though it had a two-hour running time, it flew by very quickly, and um, I think it did pretty well. Okay,
0: so uh, I uh, I've seen this film before, and I've, I've seen it many times before. It's um, uh, I, I, I was about to say it's one of my favorite Chinese films, but I haven't seen that many, so that would be uh, that wouldn't be much of a high bar. But it, I do like it a lot. Although I have to say, I liked it a lot more, uh, the first few times that I'd seen it. And then the, um, the, the last few times it's kind of, I'm, I'm seeing its flaws a, a little more, including kind of a giant plot hole that I'm, I might get to into later. But, uh, but I, I, one thing that I think differ with you is that I find this film very funny. Um, mm. especially the first ha- half of the film, um, I uh, and I I can I can talk about that as well uh, in a bit. But I I first became like I've mentioned in the show a few times. I tend to look at awards very often uh, when I uh, when when I'm looking for film recommendations. So if something gets nominated or wins a prestigious award, that's and and I've never heard of it. I usually go and watch it. And this one was a film that I kind of sought out after I, I was browsing in the mid 2000s. At some point, I was it was late high school for me, I think. And, um, you know, I was browsing the history of Cannes winners. And this was, you know, of course, in 2000, this won the second highest prize in uh, in Cannes. And I said, oh, this is interesting. Uh, the, the, the poster looks intriguing. I'm going to check it out. And I was very impressed by it. It was not at all what I was expecting. I thought a black and white Chinese warm film. This is not going to be... Uh, first of all i I hadn't read that much and i didn't even expect a comedy to be honest with you and i was uh and i expect more like a grim, even like maybe badly produced um, from a technical standpoint drama but it was anything but that so it 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 exceeded my expectations at the time of course they were you know low just because i wasn't i was relatively ignorant to to chinese cinema Uh, But I I found it one thing that I, despite the flaws that I might get get into or that I'm going to get into later in the film, I found the film's humor just works for me, especially the first half, like the wordplay that goes on with like, uh, who are you, me, uh, me, uh, and then he just, the word me, he just takes it as a name. And uh, the whole thing about when he's cheated out of the gunman and then he introduces him to an elderly An elderly swordsman that just completely fails to cut someone's head off. Yeah,
1: one strike clue.
0: Yeah, exactly, one strike clue. And the interaction, just even just the villagers' faces, like just just the way they talk with their high high pitched voice, which you know I initially I felt I felt like I thought he was racist to laugh at them, but I, I like I've mentioned before I had a Chinese roommate and he laughed at that too, so. I think now it's okay to laugh at how they speak sometimes because it is exaggerated their sort of expressions and their tones are exaggerated for comedic effect um or that uh that uncle that is uh has a one screw loose and he just wants to kill everyone yeah (laughs) um and yeah, and then the, another thing that I I always appreciate, something that, you know, films, Asian films especially do very often, is that they have this ability to switch from one genre to another in the same film. And this, this one does exactly that. It switches from, you know, comedy, at least in my view, funny comedy, although I do see how not everybody would find it funny. To something that is very very grim like you mentioned and that final scene well not exactly the final scene but the the feast that they have with uh, with uh, the Chinese villagers and the Japanese soldiers that ends up in a essentially a a massacre Uh, and that's very dark and then the the ending of the film is also very dark
1: yeah I I can see why people would find it funny it's just like um, for me it's humor I've seen before and I um, my sense of humor I like I need I needed something else and also there's like ha- like ha- an oppressive atmosphere in the film so i was just waiting it was like waiting for the other shoe to drop so i, I couldn't laugh because i knew something bad was going to happen
0: yeah and a lot of the humor is at the expense of the characters
1: yeah uh, although like when you've got the um japanese army interpreter um and the sergeants, uh, they're mixing up their words. Uh, the interpreters trying to save his own neck and um, soften the words of the Japanese soldiers. That that is amusing.
0: Yeah, that or well, that. Yeah, that uh, what he says. Uh, uh, that that that's one of my favorite uh, scenes. A lot of a lot of my discussion is going to be, oh, uh, like I, I really laughed at that scene. So sorry for that. But uh, when he when he says, uh, happy new year, you're my grandfather and I'm your son, something yeah. like that. And then I love how he, the Wen Yang character, so uh, Ma Dasan, uh, da he takes it so earnestly and he says, no, 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 no. He says he looks at the logic of it. If if I'm your grandfather, then you're my grandson, not my son. Uh, and that's yeah. that's so funny. And there's a bit of wordplay there because uh, I don't remember. Because like I said, I watched this with my Chinese roommate. Uh, and one thing I should say is that I noticed he was laughing at things that I I didn't even get. So there's a lot of uh, language humor here that is just completely missed in translation. But apparently, if I remember his explanation correctly, the word grandfather, grandson, and son have a they're easy to confuse. So that's why the Japanese guy got it wrong. Is it, is it a question like the, you have to change the intonation slightly? S- something like that. Yeah, I don't remember. But it was funny. And also another, uh, uh, another thing, apparently the, uh, some of the actors, like in Chinese, regional accents are very obvious. And some of the actors apparently are, uh, are obviously not from the region that they're pretending to be. And that, I, my roommate thought that was quite funny. I don't know if that's intentional or not. But that, that's, that's also another thing going on with this film.
1: I guess it goes to show that this film was der- uh, made primarily for a Chinese audience.
0: I think so. And this was at a time where China was not necessarily exporting much of its cinema. So it makes sense, although it is also quite poignant that it features a you know significant Japanese cast. Uh, yeah, if you go on the IMDb,
1: there's quite a few Japanese actors. It's not like... Yeah. Well known Japanese actors. Yeah, it's not, yeah, Kenya Sawada and uh, Tariuki Kagawa.
0: And it's clear from the director that he was, he was not, it was not just a Chinese propaganda film uh, where he was, you know, Japanese. The film is ironically titled Japanese Devils on the Doorstep, but it doesn't, like, ironically, the film doesn't portray the Japanese as just these, like, this old fashioned propaganda uh like most of chinese propaganda films where the japanese are the devils and the chinese are the innocent people that are just um you know mindlessly slaughtered without any regards they both both sides have complex characters and i feel like like is definitely at the very least i think wen zhang also had a japanese audience in mind not necessarily just chinese audience
1: yeah, I, I appreciated how he um, found parallels between the different characters. Like a lot of the Japanese soldiers w- came from a rural village themselves. And um, once the Chinese recognised that at the party, it was like a sort of a heartwarming thing and you could see how connections would be made before uh, in- inevitably war tears all that apart.
0: Yeah and it's like you know the the paranoia that just war causes like we're jumping the gun a little bit but in that final scene uh it seems like extremely inhumane uh what the what the Japanese do to the Chinese villagers but if you and it's, this is very easy to miss but when you if you really dissect that scene you you easily see that the whole thing is due to you know the Japanese par- paranoia that cannot possibly believe that the events that trans trans transpired with the uh prisoners are a coincidence or are just a you know a lack of the draw for uh for the villagers he thinks that there is a conspiracy happening here and is just he needs to, to be ahead of it and and you know strike before strike first before they strike him like when he keeps saying uh you know where are your men hiding or are, is, he, is he coming with like armed men to kill us or something like that to that drunk chinese man
1: yeah there's a bit of foreshadowing earlier um captain inokichi um sakatsuka um, played by kenya sawada um when he gets the japanese soldier back um when and um he's sort of questioning him although it's more like an interrogation um one of his subordinates says you can't trust what the chinese say when they say east you should think west and um as you said they they go into this village with paranoia, um, infecting their behavior. And uh, the captain, he's rigid. He's uh, all of his men are relaxed apart from him, and he's constantly questioning people. And uh, like Kenya Swada gives a magnificent performance, just really menacing, this hunk of muscle, and um, he's like a immovable object. And so when he gets it in his mind that. Uh, Ma Da San could be uh, a threat. It's like sort of dread inevitability um, to what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, and I really like in his interactions with the villagers, uh, there's there's a very subtle shift there that he does that you can clearly see He's and this is part, this is a large credit to his acting, but also cl- credit to Wen Jiang's directing, is that he's legitimately connecting uh with these villagers like you say he's he's seeing the parallels that they have that you know how well they'd get along but you can also see him fighting that sort of his inner um what's the word i'm looking for appreciation of the chinese villagers yeah absolutely he's resisting that and you know you can like when he smiles his genuine smile but then he he draws himself back and he's like pilling peeling the things out of his hand i'm not sure exactly what he's doing there but you can see the tense uh, sort of the the inner uh, battle within himself that he's like he he's thinking of course this is just uh you know conjecture but you can imagine he's saying he's thinking something along the lines i can't let i can't be fooled by these they're nice they seem nice but they're they're gonna kill us they're gonna try to kill us uh it's either us or them or something like that yeah it's like um
1: like with his i think it's his hat it's like um yeah It's like feeling that it's like reminding him that he's got a duty to perform
0: absolutely uh so yeah so this uh like like i mentioned earlier this was um so this was not a a typical and this was intentional on the part of Wen jung where he didn't want to follow what most of chinese film and literature was doing at the time to show just like a once a very one sided view of the war, although that's also, you know, the Japanese did commit atrocities in China, so that can be denied. But it's also, you know, like a lot, a lot of the times issues are a lot more like, you know, relationships are a lot more complicated than that. And he wanted to show that. And by that very virtue. China banned the film for for some time before you allowed to be released just because of that because it didn't like it didn't appreciate this you know two sidedness of the film multi dimensionality but also didn't appreciate you know like uh, our hero being killed being executed by the Chinese uh, force uh, uh, at the time at the end it didn't appreciate the Chinese villagers being portrayed as you know like you said country bumpkins it didn't appreciate you know suggesting that because you know china's especially at the time although 2000 may have been after that i'm not i'm not exactly sure where china's politics are right now regarding to the war but you know uh, you know china held that it was the communist party that defeated the japanese which is partly true of course but it's also you know china received help from the soviets from the uh, americans from from the united states and uh the chinese government has always tried to downplay that like most communist parties, most, uh, even Eastern European communist parties, it was always the communists defeated the Nazis. And in China, the the communists defeated the Japanese. And, you know, the movie doesn't necessarily deny that, but it also doesn't necessarily espouse it wholeheartedly. It doesn't glorify the communist uh, resistance. It was, it seemed more like, especially at the end, it just, you actually see the speech of the emperor where he says that we surrendered. And that seemed... That that's that's not something that you see very often in Chinese films before that time. The uh, commander
1: is flanked by Americans, and Chang Kai Shek was getting help from the Americans as well as the Russians. But um, again, he he talks about the Japanese um, civilians also suffering, and he makes those links between people. He sees the more humane as um, he sees the humanity in people before. Uh, he turns into a robot and then issues his proclamations. When the Chinese army come in to arrest all of the Japanese soldiers. Ah, Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you've got two instances where, um, well, you've got numerous instances where the Japanese are portrayed not as devils or monsters and there's constant reminder that they're humans as well. And then there's the emperor's speech and then you've got Major Gao's um, speech at the end.
0: Yeah. And and especially for the first hour of the film, you know, the Japanese the Japanese presence in the village is mostly benign. I mean, of course, yeah, you do have a bunch of people making fun of the villagers and uh, flexing, uh, flexing their muscles a little bit. But it's mostly like especially the captain of the region. He just wants to be popular like you can see that. He just wants to, you know, to have people, you know, like like in line and like pay respect to him. And he gives the children candy. So it's a very, it's almost like farcical, actually. And that's what I would characterize this film as a farce, more or less. But it's not until the end where he's put to shame by the other commander that he actually you know becomes violent but at most of the most of the film you even get the impression that he just doesn't really care about the war he just likes his position and he has no intention of harming these people in fact you know we rarely see him actually meet, treat, m- mistreat any of the villagers other than in words and trying to say hey, make sure the warm the water is warm next time or something like that
1: yeah these guys are in ma dasan's village the occupation forces they're like the Japanese naval reserve so they're not necessarily frontline soldiers um, and it's only when um, they encounter captain um, Sakatska who's like um, I, I guess you know he's the veteran uh, uh, military guy he's in the army you you can guess that he's seen a lot of combat because he's got the medals and um, he's a brutal killer as well that that's when they um, turn into type and start killing people.
0: Yeah, and he's also the, what? what's the last name of the commander, Sakatsuka? Sakatsuka. Sakatsuka, yeah, I'm terrible with names, but, uh, but he is just pretty memorable. But yeah, you can also see very clear that he is the, exactly like the ideal product of the Japanese propaganda machine. Like he's not necessarily a, a Malhar, uh, like a bad, pr- well, that, that's, that's relative, but you know, he's someone that maybe someone like Ma Dasan could get along, but he's just years and years of this divine right that the Japanese emperor fed to his uh, soldiers. That's that he's essentially the, the poster child for that philosophy for that uh, ideology. Uh, whereas the the captain that is in the village is not necessarily a product of that. He is more of a someone who just probably just sees this as a job and nothing more. Yeah,
1: he's more laid back and he likes marching around with his troops and uh, going for a swim,
0: playing the naval the naval uh, the Japanese naval uh, marching song. Yeah, and uh, handing out sweets to kids. So he, yeah, and he's definitely more of the
1: benign figure of the two. Um, yeah. Which is not to downplay um, the Japanese occupation of Manchuria. Uh, it was pretty brutal. There's like um, uh, casual racism which is thrown out by the Japanese. And um, it feels like a natural build up. Like when you hear the nationalist propaganda from various soldiers and the racism, it feels like a, a, a natural build up to sort of a massacre at the end.
0: Exactly. And that's you know, and you can kind of draw the same parallels for, from, for the, you know, like the Nazi occupation in Europe. It's, you know, of course that does not excuse anyone of the atrocities, whether they were just the person giving the orders or the lowly soldier who, uh, followed it. But you can also very clearly, you know, see what is the result of propaganda and what is, you know, something that is truly evil versus something that is just, you know, years and years of shoving in, you know, bad information into your brain. Yeah. Uh yeah, I, I one thing that I was going uh, to so that's one point that I think when John while making the film wanted to get across. I don't know if you've seen, are you familiar with um uh with um uh, what's the name of the director? Uh, y- yang jimu no 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 although funny enough uh, one of his uh first uh weng jang's first acting role i think one of his either his first or one of his first or the role that made him popular anyway was yang jimu's red sorghum i don't know if you've seen that film no uh okay i mean it's it's a worth watch it's, uh, it's a, a, a relatively well-known and highly acclaimed yang jimu film uh, and it stars Wen Jiang. And that's how that what that's what he was only like 24 at the time or something. And that's what made him popular. But no, Masaki Kobayashi. Oh, yeah. 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 He's a he's a director that, you know, he made a lot of films about the war. Uh, there there are a couple of references uh, to him, and I don't know if they're intentional or they're just coincidence, but the translation scene uh, where, you know, like you mentioned himself, where the Chinese guy translates uh the japanese it translates the japanese guys wrong just so they won't he won't get him in trouble yeah that there's an identical scene in masaki kobayashi's uh the human condition trilogy ah that's also set in manchuria yes and in the third part he's they're captured they're prisoners of war in russia and uh he's trying to say something that we should we should collaborate like the jap the main character who's played by tetsuya nakadai a wonderful actor Sword of Doom. Yes, exactly. A lot of films. A lot of films. There, there's just it would take forever to just list the great films that he's been. But but he is uh famously in this um in, in this uh uh, the Human Condition Trilogy by Masaki Kobayashi and uh, he's trying to like essentially uh, uh, like say something uh, he's the character they plays is a pacifist and when he's captured he's trying to say that I have no ill in my heart and I just I've always tried to not kill and whatever I, I don't remember exactly cause it's been a while since I've seen it but it like that and the, the translator is doing exactly the opposite is is translating Tatsuya Nakadai's character as though he's saying something very bad and cursing and, and uh, condemning and saying racist things against the Chinese and whatnot. Uh, and this is like the scenes, and that's also black and white. So the scenes are very reminiscent of each other, uh, but they have the opposite effect. Now now the guy's translating it to actually make him come off as nicer, whereas uh, for the human condition, they come, they're making him come out as more racist. Um, and the other thing is, uh, Masako Bayashi did a, a four-hour documentary on the uh, War Crimes Tribunal called uh, The Tokyo Trials. And he's trying, and he's kind of making the same point that most uh, Japanese soldiers, and especially the people who were convicted in the uh, in the Tokyo trials, did not necessarily were not necessarily guilty of the atrocities. They were just products of the propaganda machine. And kind of, I don't know if this is a direct reference, but Wen Jiang is, in my opinion, kind of making exactly the same point here.
1: Yeah, like he's making the point that these people who don't know any better are being fed all of this information about, um, this foreign country and a lot of the, uh, the soldiers from Japan, they're from small villages. Um, they don't have that much experience and they've also, they're, they've joined an organization which has been occupying China for, um, over 50 years, I think. And so like all of th- their beliefs are being, have been confirmed by what they see on the ground and um i f- i feel like um there's a similar dynamic um with nazis in the sense that um they recruited from the countryside uh people who weren't that cosmopolitan and uh, who had limited world
0: views well yeah i mean it's it's related to you know what we talked about last episode in members of murder about the banality of evil uh It's sort of, you know, it it doesn't necessarily, you know, everybody is capable of, you know, performing terrible acts if they're, you know, taken advantage of just in the right way. And, you know, you can say that about Germans or you can say that about um, Japanese people during World War II. Uh, A lot of them were, you know, didn't necessarily even understand the ideology they were part. They just had this, uh, they were, you know, fed this very, very strong uh, sense of patriotism and and you know very narrow idea what patriot of what patriotism is, is that it is this way and you have to do this otherwise you've shamed your family and you're shaved shamed your you know your country and whatever and uh, both of these themes just to go back to what i was talking about earlier are very strong have, are very present strongly present in in uh, Masaiko Bayashi's filmography and also Kinji Fukasako's filmography uh, that uh, that I've mentioned before how much I like him and Masaiko Bayashi is another director that I really like a lot and I've seen most of his films and I think both of them kind of uh, talk about themes that, that uh, you know that are present in this film in devils on the doorstep by Wen jag and actually i feel like if i think he was he probably must have watched a bunch of japanese warren films uh, when he made this film because there's it seems like even in style it seemed very reminiscent like like some of his camera works and his fast cutting and his like uh shake, sh- shaky camera work and handheld camera reminded me a lot of uh, uh kinji fukasaku yeah he has a lot of that and even even the topics and how he treats these topics are were very reminiscent for kinji Fukasaku, in my opinion yeah
1: i could see that like the, the uh, use of uh, close-ups and um shaky camera during the arguments especially yeah, and
0: that's such a great technique because it kind of puts you into the disorientation that the characters feel
1: yeah it's, well, it's just uh one crazy thing after another in this incredibly dangerous situation and so you totally feel for Ma
0: absolutely when i when i wrote when i was writing my personal roads notes um uh, i was uh, i wrote down that um did i write this down i forget but i i remember thinking something like he has very little agency in the film uh it's just you know like it just things bad things happen to him just bad luck happens to him and he just you know all he wants to do is just to be left alone and most of the villagers they just want to be left alone they just want grain like that's their ambition in life they have no political ideology but it's just these bad things keep happening to them one after another first he's like two two prisoners are dropped under him then the guy doesn't come then his assassination attempts fail and then like finally the last thing that he tries also fails
1: yeah you absolutely feel sorry for him because like it's 1945 you know the war's going to end at some point and all ma da wants to uh do is just uh be with you uh, and like suddenly world war ii and all the messy politics uh of in asia have crashed into his lap and he cannot escape from it
0: yeah uh also uh A little bit unrelated, but there's some great, speaking of the visual uh, aesthetic of the film or the visual, the shots, there's some great shots of the Great Wall, and I don't know if they were real or if they were recreations.
1: I'm not sure myself either. I enjoyed um, uh, the massacre scene when you've got the lighthouse lights sweeping across the landscape, and um, it highlights um, Sakatsuka as um, he uh, relieves sergeant hannah tells him you don't have to kill yourself the war's over
0: yeah yeah no that was that was a a very like a like an amazing way to end a scene like that just the it, it capitalized on the irony yeah speaking of on which like i mentioned that i do think the film has some flaws and i do think some some scenes kind of drag out a little bit more than i felt like some of the arguments that they have uh, you know, like after a while, kind of like it's funny for a little bit, then it kind of drags out a little bit more than it has to like when he, like the two guys, uh, like say, cut my head, cut my head. And then he just grabs the axe and he says, oh, don't push me. Don't push me. Yeah, um, it
1: goes through a couple of variations of that. Well, yeah,
0: I felt, I felt certain scenes uh, just kind of drag out a little bit too long. And then the film has, in my view, kind of a, a, a gaping plot hole. Okay, the fact that so they decide so like two-thirds in the film they decide they're going to turn in the prisoners in exchange for grain right yeah they have a they have a they have a a sector of the japanese army right there why not turn it into them instead of go all the way to a different town and to see another captain you're right earlier
1: in the film one of the villagers
0: um says that he's in good
1: with the captain who's in the local village I can only uh and you know that would make uh, any handover of a prisoner uh, much easier uh I can only surmise that uh Hania wanted to go back to his um uh, original base and so um he got them to take him there which ironically puts them in danger
0: no that's true that that's true there are there are several explanations but which could theoretically justify it but none of them are 100% satisfactory like wherever they surrendered him it's safe to assume that he eventually then would make he would be safe so he could make back to his ba- his way back to the base like they wouldn't like the the jap the naval uh section um uh, of the japanese army wouldn't keep him they would just send him to the appropriate uh, you know parts of the country of the army I yeah i think it's like
1: they spent the film trying not to disturb these great forces and they needed a way for like the japanese to um be drawn into the story as a hostile force
0: yeah yeah i mean another another reason is i thought like they would the local captain uh, the naval captain would be mad to find out that Someone was under his nose. Yeah, <laughs> the but if, time. It, like he would find that out anyway. It's not like they would be able; they would not like if they took it to another sergeant or another captain. Like it would not make make the news to him. Uh, like it seemed, you know, because they had to take him out of town without the the navy finding out. So that seems like an extra risk that they had to calculate for. Yeah. So it seems. It seems. It seems like you know. Yeah, there are ways to explain it. Like you said. Yeah, maybe they just you know, wanted to, I don't know, not disturb the locals, but, you know, they, that would happen eventually. So I don't know. It seems it's like I've never been able to, like, to make that not bother me. It's always bother me every time I watch this film.
1: I, do, I, I, I suppose, like, you imagine that people in that situation, you when the Japanese all come, the adults always react with fear, like um, you were hides. And, um, the men are constantly worried about being killed and like, they've heard, they surely they've heard what's happened in Nanking and, uh, they know the history lessons of what happens, uh, during the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, uh, at the turn of the century. So there would be like, there is a, a, a palpable sense of fear and that like, throughout the story, there's this idea that they don't want to disturb the Japanese or the Chinese army. They want to try and like navigate their way through the middle and so it doesn't it doesn't make sense if you've got like a friendly naval captain or a friendly-ish naval captain who you can sort of gauge his reaction uh or like living right just down the road and instead of going to him you take a, a captured Japanese prisoner who's been with you for like a year to an army base uh, like some of these soldiers surely they must have been involved in some of their um uh, massacres up and down china like you're provoking something
0: i suppose but i, I i'm well, i have one comment in that i don't know that these particular villagers would be necessarily aware of all the specifics of the Japanese atrocities at this point. Like when like the guy, he looks at a telephone and he's completely amazed. He's clearly never seen it before. He's shouting at it while he's communicating with these, the other villager, the, the, the village chiefs or or whatever he is. Mm. So I don't know. I got the impression that like, yeah, they know there is a war and they know that the Japanese have killed Chinese obviously because there's a war, but I don't know that they're necessarily well informed i think
1: i think at the time like the nanking massacre wasn't um widely reported
0: i i yeah that's that's why i'm saying yeah
1: yeah so i i guess if like these yeah these people are in a remote coastal village so it's possible that they don't know what's happened but surely at some point they've heard something
0: eventually yeah and like i i also got the like you like i agree with you they did you know they did try to stay on the good side of the japanese occupied that occupied their village but i also don't know that they were absolutely terrified of them uh because for instance like in that one scene where two japanese soldiers would go very close to the house and they Like they tell him to, oh, stay within that circle. The Hmm. first time, as soon as they, uh, as soon as they tell him, uh, as as soon as they turn their heads around, he like leaves. Like he's, he's not like he's scared, obviously, because they have guns. But he doesn't look like you know they're completely terrified of them, or like Dasan Ma when he has that cleaver or that hatchet that he's about to attack them if they go close to the place where they're hiding the prisoners. Yeah, like so it, it it doesn't look like they're a hundred percent suppressed
1: i I suppose you could say like they're used to it by now like the japanese have been occupying the place for quite a while and um, absolutely they're just trying to get along quietly um which is why like the two prisoners being uh in the village is such a massive issue for them
0: yeah i mean they just want to live their lives uh you know um you know inquired and so go ahead please yeah the interpreter like the japanese have been there for i think around
1: 50 years at that point so the interpreter has clearly just taken on another job and uh like they i suppose they they they're not concerned about wider events
0: yeah, and you. So uh, the so moving to slightly to uh, a related but slightly different topic. You know, the villagers are trying to live their lives as normal as they can, it, despite the the Japanese occupation. You sort of get the impression that they don't care that much as long as the Japanese don't directly interfere with their business, which is, you know, not political in any way. They're just, they're concerned with livestock, with grain, with, you know, being able to be warm at night and stuff like that. So it doesn't look like the Japanese occupation is affecting at them up to the point where the prisoners are dropped in the middle of the night, which, like you said, completely disturbs their lifestyle. Do you think the director... Is kind of trying to make the point here that you just cannot be removed from current events. That they eventually, if if you try to just kind of live independent, because that's what the that's a a frequent point that the villagers make. Even uh, this is stated explicitly when they're trying to talk about uh you know handing over the prisoner they say you know what we'll just hand over the prisoners we'll get the rice and that's fine so they're trying to like stay as neutral and as out of it as possible but it's just i wonder if the director is making the case here that you can't that's impossible eventually current events will catch up with you so it can either be you, you must choose either one side or the other but you just can't ignore it forever
1: yeah it's like you have to act even if the like the like the world will force you to act in some way um, I thought he was depicting uh, another side to Manchuria, which, like with a lot of propaganda films, it would be nonstop action and melodrama, whereas we get like day to day life in this village and it's quiet, and people are inured to the Japanese occupation, so they're used to it. And I thought that was an interesting view of the conflict,
0: yeah. and uh, so to get back to what you just said, uh, you have to act, and I find it, you know, intentionally ironic that. The only time that Dasan, my character, is, is acting instead of reacting, because for most of the film you can just say that he is reacting to what's ever happening, the first time where he decides to take action, which is at the end of the film after, after everything has happened, he is executed for it.
1: Yeah, it's an uh, ironic fate that the person who he spent the film trying to keep alive is the person who ends up executing him. And he dies in a way that, um, what was it, One Strike Liu? yeah yeah like uh and uh, you Ooh, can see smile. like he's fine now that he's finally taken action there's a smile on his face so there's some satisfaction that he's seized some control even though his existence has ended
0: yeah although i did count his head did not roll nine times it only rolled six times uh, unless because that's what he said their head rolls exactly nine times and then they smile when that guy's like you know upping <laughs> or exaggerating lose abilities yeah uh yeah although maybe it, ro- it rolled three times before the camera started on it yeah well uh and then the shot
1: turns into color what did you make of that
0: so yeah that's uh that i was just going to comment on that uh, and that could be just me seeing things were not there but it kind of goes to the point that we just were talking about that these villagers saw the world as black and white Ah, uh, yeah, and at, only at the end he's finally kind of to see the complications right before he dies. He's seeing you know the colors of the world where you know like how more complex the, the real world is uh, v- in, versus the idyllic life that he had been part of for most of his existence. Yeah, I, that's uh, yeah. that's how, what I made of it. Yeah, I agree with that reading.
1: Also, like the title "Devils on the Doorstep," you were just uh, like obviously it's a slur um used uh for foreign invaders in china but it can also be applied to um ma da san's neighbors who keep piling on work for him to do and keep putting him in danger and um it can also be applied to sort of um the uh the chinese army which comes in and ultimately um executes him orders his execution
0: he just can't catch a break
1: yeah so it, like devils there's no easy interpretation of who the devil at the doorstep is it could be anything it's just like this he's just stuck having to deal with all this
0: yeah apparently uh yeah and it's um that's one of the things that the chinese you know film bureau didn't appreciate you know the portrayal of the chinese in the country there weren't you know not only there weren't just the innocent victims that that usually like propaganda films used to portray, but they were, you know, kind of buffoonish, as you said. And that's that, yeah, they didn't like that at all. Although I guess eventually they gave away uh, to it because the film was eventually released uh, in uh, in China. However, apparently uh, reading just the Wikipedia article, uh, the Japanese, pr- and this film had Japanese producers or Japanese advisors, something like that. I'm not exactly sure what Japan's uh, role in this film was but they definitely had some something to do it wasn't just it wasn't a pure chinese production there was some japanese help in it i'm not, I'm not sure to what extent uh, i haven't been able to find much information in it yeah there's uh, I read the same wikipedia
1: article and it's like a japanese producer and the uh, imdb page is a japanese cast and yeah. um, uh, when jiang actually um, went to tri- china drama academy with some of the japanese actors uh according to the wikipedia article
0: yeah 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 uh, but um uh but yeah they, they also had objection to it I, and i think was i remember reading a review from someone claiming that the objection was about the final massacre scene the japanese thought he portrayed uh he was portrayed the japanese soldier a little bit too harshly although i, I i'm not uh, i'm not sure that that's correct but uh i don't having having read
1: um some stuff around uh nanking massacre or nanjing massacre i i think the film adequately dealt with it in a um in a in a tasteful manner i should say
0: yeah and i think i think but they probably a minority opinion i don't think because uh, the film did relatively well in Japan when it was finally released there
1: like a, a, a nationalist, uh, nationalist descent, I suppose.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so let's see what else uh, I have here. Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, I, we already talked about that a a bit, but it, the film is is sort of a farce in the sense that you know a lot of that happened is just l- lack and uh, circumstance, and it just things just ha- happen to the characters, uh, and they're just reacting. This is. One of the few instances, I was very impressed by the script, uh, and I, I don't remember if it was Wen Jiang's script or he, if he collaborated with someone. Yeah, he, there's a bunch of screenwriters, but he is, uh, uh, he is one of them, and he usually writes his own films. But um, it's one of the examples where, where I see writing where the main character doesn't have that much agency. And is mostly reacting to stuff, and that's usually a big no-no in writing. Like if you've ever taken a creative writing class, that's one of the things that they say you should never do. Your your character should never be passive and should be active. And here, in fact, in fairness, the character is active, but it it it's always reacting to something. It's never he's never creating circumstances. He's just uh, he's just responding to them. And I thought that was a very skilled on behalf of the screenwriters that that are able to pull like a fascinating character. Uh, within those norms that are normally considered, uh, you know, using techniques that are normally considered, uh, that are normally frowned upon in creative writing. It
1: definitely does make for an interesting drama. Um, It would go into the realms of uh, unbelievability if uh, he was orchestrating um, some sort of rebellion. uh, It would take it into um, action territory, which dozens of other films do and so i appreciated that it got the complex sort of political uh and social situation in uh, manchuria and touched on it in a relatively uh light manner and we were able to see it uh from the perspective of someone at the very bottom of society
0: absolutely yeah that's also another another great you know obviously it's not there are other examples of it but it is not very common to see uh to see you know something like a a major world war from a the lowest possible perspective or uh you know someone uh, someone from the lowest class to put it to put it crudely
1: yeah it's like you said earlier it's, it's probably making the comment that like you can't hide from big world events
0: yeah. Uh out of curiosity, have you uh seen or heard of any of the other uh films that Wen Jiang has made? No, this is my first one. Okay. I would recommend he's a fascinating director. So I, uh, the first he filmed that he directed in The Heat of the Sun is kind of similar. It's uh, almost autobiographical. It's about a, a a bunch of kids growing up in 60s China or 70s China, something like that. Uh, and then um he did he did another one in 2007 which I'm forgetting the name um he was also in uh, a rogue one in star wars rogue one uh he was one of the two chinese guys the other one was uh, Donnie, Donian, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah yeah so the other the other chinese guy was uh wen Jiang. Mm, okay. i'm assuming he only did it for the money
1: <laughs> yeah he needed a new beach house or something
0: <laughs> yeah yeah or he was funny yeah he also he did two the sun also rises in 2007 uh which i remember very little about uh but and then he did another one which i it's a sort of a comedy very similar uh, it's another period piece, but it's more of a gangster comedy, Let the Bullets Fly, which uh, stars um, uh, Cho Yun-fat as well. And he is, he stars in most of the movies that he directs, but it, this one stars Cho Yun-fat as well. It's, it's also very funny. I, I wouldn't say it's as poignant and as good overall as Devil's on the Doorstep, in my opinion, but it's... Possibly funnier. So, if you didn't think "Devils on the Doorstep" wasn't funny enough, but you maybe want to check out this director, "Let the Bullets Fly" is, uh, in my opinion, even funnier.
1: Okay, I'll check it out.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those films that is easy to find. It's not, it's not obscure or anything like that.
1: I'm sure I've heard the title somewhere.
0: Uh, it came out in 2010, and it was it made the news around that time. So it uh, it was fairly popular, you know, as as far as a Chinese film goes okay okay so is there anything else that you, we in our discussion that you felt we left and uh, you'd like to go over uh, no um,
1: yeah the only use uh, no the only use of music was the um, Japanese Imperial Navy March
0: yeah 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 it Was very prominent in the film
1: yeah uh, like uh, beyond uh, Wikipedia entry I didn't find too much about it
0: so how so? This was the first time for you, and and we've already made the disclaimer that neither of us is that that well versed in Chinese cinema. Uh, but how how would you rank this film? And did you find it to be accessible? Did you find it that it was a good entry point into either Chinese cinema or Asian cinema in general? Um, I find it. Uh I found the
1: story really intelligently constructed. Um, all the ironies and the mirroring in the film. I found the performances uh, quite compelling. Um, I, if I were recommending this to people, I would add the proviso. It's a, I would say it's a black comedy with the proviso that it gets very grim. Um, I think it's a, uh, in terms of Jap, uh, Chinese cinema. Um, I'm not sure how much of a good entry point it is. It seems atypical for like a war film from China, but that's based on my limited experience. Uh, for that reason, I think uh, I would recommend people check it out, I guess, just to see something different from the sort of, uh, propaganda films and to see uh, uh, Chinese history from a different perspective.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I would agree with um, pretty much everything you said. I I also hold, I, I do hold this film in high regard, obviously, I, that's why I recommended it. I do find it a little bit funnier than you do, but that's, I, based on my personal experience to all the people that I've shown this film or I've recommended the, this film, it, it's a 50-50 sp- split. Some some people, you know, find it funny, others just don't necessarily get it. Or not, not, not don't get it, but they just, they the, the humor doesn't exactly... Uh, appeal to them personally so it's yeah. it's a fairly common reaction i think but uh, i would say that just uh, this film it was one of my early asian film experiences and it did make me kind of seek the genre more in fact after this one i did seek out a few more asian war films like another one that i saw immediately after this uh because it was recommended to me as similar to this was another uh chinese film called assembly which was released in uh two 2007 uh, and that was is more about uh, you know the Chinese Civil War that followed the Second World War. And uh, that's another one film that's not a, not at all similar to this, but it's also a Chinese war film that is maybe not 100% propaganda. It's, it deals with um, uh, it deals with a few more complicated is- issues, mm. although it's still safe enough for the Chinese Communist Party. so it doesn't it doesn't defy party lines or anything like that, but it's still a compelling film.
1: Ah, uh, here's a question I've got for you. Do you think that um, China banning it um, had just as much to do with the portrayal of their um, Japanese soldiers and um, the way they consume and espouse propaganda? Were there uncomfortable
0: parallels, do you think? Uh, it's, it's certainly possible. Of course, I, I can you know, put myself in the head of the Chinese censor bureau and, and- guess what it is why they banned it but it's i i fully agree that that's possible it's you know it's it's it the film is certainly not although it's it's somewhat subtle it's certainly not kind on propaganda and it's obviously making fun of it and you know that whether or not the film bureau saw that or it went over their heads i don't know but if they did it certainly that could have certainly been a part of it
1: Mm yeah, I'd, yeah I'd, I thought it was an interesting aspect and um, I, I appreciated what uh, they did with the Japanese soldiers.
0: And like I said I, I don't know I, I can't say definitely that this is a, a good gateway film, a good entry into either Chinese or Asian film but it did it, it was so for me. so that's uh, you know hopefully it will be for someone else too
1: yeah I would, i'd say it's it's a good film it's like the humor didn't quite land for me but if it it, it would probably work for other people okay everything else about the film is great
0: yeah it's, it's certainly worth checking out no matter what you know what um what your stance is
1: yeah i think my sense of humor is just really cracked <laughs>
0: yeah no it's uh, comedy especially something that is the even harder to bring from culture to culture or from language to language especially yeah yeah there was like a there was a you know the abbott and costello part of who the who wordplay joke like that might some people might find that funny and others just doesn't don't really don't it's not for them i think the comment
1: that you made about your chinese uh, roommates uh laughing at all of the wordplay and the regional accents like uh, yeah key even stuff that, that I didn't get even yeah.
0: stuff that I didn't get yeah yeah um Okay, so so that was um, that was our discussion for uh, the Chinese the two thousand Chinese films Devils on the Doorstep. So, like I mentioned last time, this is the final episode of the first season of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian Cinema Podcast. And this, like I mentioned, we mentioned multiple times in the show, this was a a season dedicated to gateway films, and uh, we covered we did eight episodes, and of course, in those in each of those episodes, we talked about other films, not just the films that the episode was about. So, hopefully, this. Well, first season of Heroic Purgatory gave you something either for you or for some of your friends that are not necessarily familiar with Asian cinema and, you know, want to check it out. And hopefully we gave you a good list of films to kind of try to immerse yourself into a diverse array of uh, Asian films. We're going to do one more episode, which is going to be a Christmas special and it's going to be released around Christmas time. We're not sure exactly what day. And also we're not sure exactly what that episode is going to be. It's going to be, you know, more casual, uh, more loose format, something just to have fun with. And then we're going to take a short break, maybe a month or so, to kind of plan out what season two is going to be. And then we're going to resume Heroic Purgatory uh, with a new uh, season and a new theme uh, around that season. So uh, uh maybe uh, I, I didn't plan this at all but uh, just uh, we we started this as an experiment Jason and we you know said let's try it let's see what happens how is it gonna go So what was your impression of our uh, first season so far?
1: I, I really enjoyed it it was uh, professionally uh, produced so <laughs> and uh, it's a lot of fun talking about um, uh, all of the different films that we've seen and um, our impressions and uh, our experiences and um i think people can gain something from this like being able to discover new titles and um i think that's at least something i tried to set out to do when i started writing and um i'm glad you brought me on to the podcast and you've done such an amazing job producing each episode so thank you
0: yeah thank you thank you uh and yeah that's that's sort of uh, my if 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 our audience gets nothing else out of this podcast it's uh you know i would be glad if they just got more recommendation and that's one reason why i like the first segment of evap- of each episode that we do that we talk about what we've seen because even though we don't necessarily they have nothing to do with our uh With the main, you know, the main part of the episode, it's just you know, it gives us an opportunity to catch up, relax into the recording session, and also you know, maybe give ideas out into the world as to oh, you know, um, you know, we give a thirty-second you know spiel of what what we thought of it, and maybe that will encourage someone to check the same thing out or or whatnot. So you know, hopefully our audiences will appreciate that and find them valuable, and at least get some good recommendations out of each episode.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it's been a, a lot of fun and, um, I hope everybody listens, gained something from it and, uh, yeah, keep following the podcast, uh,
0: on the Twitter and on the website and, uh, let us know what you think. Absolutely. Yes. So that, that's, um, I think that's it for our episode, unless you have anything else to add. Uh, nope. <laughs> Okay, so this has been yet another episode, the final episode of the first season of Heroic Purgatory an Asian Cinema Podcast. Uh, please um, check us out on the or uh, keep listening uh, or keep following us for the Christmas special a couple of weeks from now or somewhere around then. And then stay tuned. Don't unsubscribe for us if you're subscribed because we will come back with the second season with uh, after we decide exactly what theme and what uh, topic that season will revol- revolve around. As always, have a stay safe. Uh, um, keep um, keep watching films and uh, enjoy the whole the upcoming holidays as well.